Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is David Hay. He is the co-chief investment officer of Evergreen Gov Call. He is also the author of the Substack Haymaker. In this episode, David explains why the odds of a recession are going up with each passing day. We also delved into the bond market and why he sees a structural bond bear market and shared his fears around what he calls a federal fiscal funding fiasco. I really enjoyed this conversation with David, and I hope you do too. David Hay, co-chief investment officer of Evergreen Govcal, also author of the Haymaker Substack and author of the book, Bubble 3.0, History's Biggest Financial Bubble, Who Blew It and How to Protect Yourself When It Blows Apart. David, it is great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the invite, Julie. And I want to compliment you on your pronunciation of Gavkel. Hardly anybody gets that right. So it has to be your French background. <laughs> well, my husband would say t- the opposite uh, with uh, my my French pronunciations and uh, accent. Um, but yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'm excited to have you on. Um, someone with 45 years of experience. And so I know there's a lot we want to dig into. And David, I want to start where I usually start with my guest, and that is the big picture, the macro view. What does that look like for you today? We can divide it into two parts, the markets and the economy. Let's start with the big picture. Well, I think everything's revolving around the very intense debate as to whether we're going to have a soft landing, no landing, uh, or a hard landing. And I put myself reluctantly in the hard landing camp a little over a year ago. And so far, you say, well, probably the, the soft landing folks are victorious. But I think that that conclusion is premature. And one of the reasons I say that is that we've already got a recession of profits. And that was always actually something I said repeatedly as I was more confident that we'd have an earnings recession than an actual recession. And that's clearly underway. Uh, We've got a government tax receipt recession. We've got an industrial recession. And we've got a GDI or a gross domestic income recession though that can be revised and it's kind of moving around a little bit. But anyway, there's a lot of bad stuff that's already accumulated. And you know, people kind of forget that in the first half of last year, GDP actually fell in Q1 and Q2. And GDI didn't confirm that. So once again, GDI was accurate more so than GDP. But yet Wall Street is very much convinced that you know, if, if we're going to get a recession, it's not going to be anytime soon. It's going to be very mild. And frankly, I think the odds of recession are going up, not down with each passing day. I think that's just kind of normal that these, when you're in the midst of an extremely aggressive Fed tightening cycle, and don't forget, which gets very little press, it's a double tightening. You know, they're not just raising interest rates and they've raised them drastically, almost uh, the greatest, to the greatest degree since the early 1980s, but they're also shrinking their balance sheet. That's quantitative tightening, the opposite of quantitative easing. And those impacts have not fully been felt yet. So I think it's, it's a little uh, foolhardy, frankly, to believe that that's not going to bite at some point. And I think we're starting to see more and more evidence that it is. So, but you know, the reason people should care about that from the stock market standpoint is if you get a recession, you typically get a market decline of 30 to 40%. Now, last year was admittedly very nasty. We got pretty close at the, at the low point. And then we had this uh, rather unusual rally that's occurred over the last year. I say unusual because as you know, it's been extremely narrow. So that's just a kind of a quick take, but just color me skeptical about a lot of things right right now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great quick take. And there are a few things I just want to explore further with you. Um, 
So with the odds of a recession going up with each passing day, um, what do you think Wall Street is missing if there's so many that are convinced that we're not going to get one or they're, I guess, the, if, if the soft landing camp thinks they're, they're victorious, what, what do you think they're missing? Well, I think there's a focus a lot on the lagging data, uh, particularly the unemployment status, which is very low, unquestionably, though there are a lot of signs that it is eroding. So if you look at the leading indicators of the most lagging indicator, they are flashing definitely orange, if not quite red at this point. And I also think that there's perhaps too much reliance on government statistics, which are notoriously subject to revision. In fact, there were six straight downward revisions to the official uh, jobless rate uh, earlier in the year. I haven't seen uh, that updated, but uh, and the other thing that's that's a sad fact in the post-pandemic world is that you're getting up when they do these surveys, which drive the data, the response rates are like half of what they were prior to uh, the pandemic. So I think you really have to question those surveys. And there's also the reality that when the economy is in transition, and I'll be the first to admit there are a lot of very confusing cross currents out there. So you can kind of look at the data and come up with whatever story you want to come up with. But when you look at transition points in the economy, some of these government uh, typical statistical uh, tricks that they play, which in normal times are okay, start to throw out misleading data. The most, most prominent in that regard is the birth death model. And that assumes how many businesses are opening versus closing. And generally, that's a pretty good statistic. But if the economy is actually turning down, and you start to get a lot of bankruptcies, business bankruptcies, which by the way is happening, bankruptcies are surging, which is now I think a reflection of those much higher interest rates, then that birth death model is is off the mark. That's what happened back in 2007. I think that's another thing, Julie, it's been so long since we've actually had a true recession as, as opposed to the flash recession of, the, of COVID that a lot of people in business just don't know how to prepare for it. They don't recognize the signs. Unfortunately, I'm so old, I've been through this, you know, multiple times. So that's uh, maybe the only good thing about getting older. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting bringing up like the birth death model um, for businesses and you're seeing that string of bankruptcies. And it does bring up the question, you know, this whole um, idea of higher for longer, but like really the emphasis being on that longer part. How do you think that plays out. I'd love to hear your perspective there if we're already starting to see some bankruptcies. What I imagine there will be more when you stay longer. Well, absolutely. And I think there's a good chance the Fed hikes one more time. I think that's not the biggest deal in the world. I think you're probably right that it's the duration of it staying at these high levels that's going to be problematic. I mean, if you look at what small businesses are paying in terms of their interest rate, I mean, it's pushing 10% and, and headed higher. And a lot of companies can't afford that. And when you look at even publicly traded uh, companies that are kind of on the edge, you know, the quasi-zombies, they weren't really able to make money with 4% interest rates. In some cases, they're now paying low double digits on their floating rate debt. Uh, they're gone. They, they just can't make it. And they're going to start laying off people, which is kind of how recessions happen. Yeah. Um. You were also mentioning earlier, and I took some notes, and this is why I love this show, because I get to like learn from folks like yourself, and you're helping all of us get better. GDI recession. Um, I, think, I think that there's a lot of focus on GDP, but I want to hear more on this um, you know, GDI recession. So they're very similar. 
one, one measures output, one measures total income. They tend to be highly correlated, although there are times in the cycle, business cycle, where they diverge. And historically, when they diverge, it's GDI that is right and GDP that's wrong. And I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's a very high statistical uh, correlation. And I would once again point you to last year, which it just amazes me how few people go back and remember that GDP was negative for the first two quarters of last year, which caused a lot of people to think, well, that's a recession. I didn't think so at the time. And, and one of the, I didn't rely on this totally, but GDI was not confirming that. So once again, you know, score one for GDI. So it's gross domestic income versus gross domestic product. Very, very similar, but they can be different to, you know, when economic, you know, typically when there's a transition, I think that's another indication that we're going through this transition phase. And so I think it's fair to say that we are going to get a soft landing. I mean, that's normal. You go from expansion to soft landing to hard landing, uh, unless the Fed can pull off, you know, one of its soft landings, which it's done, but very rarely and never with a yield curve that is as inverted as it is this time. And that's, some people say, well, don't pay attention to the inverted yield curve because it's not always right. Well, that's true. There have been some kind of fleeting yield curve inversions. In the mid-60s, there was one. Don't think it quite inverted in the mid-90s, but it may have. But anyway, they were, they were mild and fleeting, whereas this one's deep and lasting. And there's just never been a time when that hasn't happened. Another thing that people don't look at very much, I never hear them talk about on CNBC, is there is something called the leading economic indicators. Why did they call them that? Well, Shockingly, because they lead. They're down 17 straight months. That's never happened without a recession ensuing. So the timing is tricky. And I think one reason the timing has been so tricky this time is because there's still so much money in the system. I mean, we, the United States was doing full-on MMT, modern monetary theory, during the worst of COVID. So it was not only the Fed printing tons of money, which they did earlier. You know, that was the, what I call the ocean liners, QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4 unofficially, which was the repo crisis of 2019. But this time, you had the federal government joining and, and it's, you know, sending trillions of dollars to people. And that and then we had, you know, more recently, we had the Inflation Reduction Act and the other uh, factors behind the fiscal blowout. So as I think you know, but maybe a lot of your listeners don't, the federal deficit for the most recent fiscal year was pretty close to $2 trillion. It absolutely exploded. And government funding or, or uh, Debt issuance is also exploding. Uh, the government had to raise almost $2 trillion in the second half of this year. And that's been one of my real mega fears is that we're going to have what I call the 4F scenario, the federal fiscal funding fiasco, where there would just be so much debt being raised by the federal government that it would overwhelm the buyers. And I hear a lot of people poo-poo that, but okay, let's look at the bond market. It's a mess. I mean, we've had a huge breakout above 4.3% on the 10-year treasury, and it hit almost 5% a couple of weeks ago. And then it pulled back, and uh, the 10, the, sorry, the 30-year went to 5%. That's a, a like a 15-year breakout to a new high in yields. We are in a secular bear or a long-term bear market in bonds. And I think that's really huge news that is only being kind of belatedly appreciated. Hey, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening and watching the show. I do want to share something with you all. And if you've been here since earlier this year, you've probably noticed that this channel and the content that we're putting out has improved. And I'm not talking about the interviews. I'm talking about the quality of the production. And I have one person to thank for that. And that is my wonderful producer, Matt Marlinsky, who is the founder of Marlinsky Media. So, 
If you're someone like myself and you want to get started in podcasting, or maybe you already have a show and you want to level up the production, you have to work with Matt. Not only is he a super talented producer, he is a wonderful person and there's no one I would rather build this show with than him. And he's also great when it comes to producing content. So if you already have content, he can help you create more short form to grow your audience. So definitely go check out Marlinsky Media. Okay, back to the interview. I want to hear more on that because um, you're mentioning 45 years in this business. And this, ha- and maybe this is my naive question. Are there not many who've been around for a bond bear market, are there? Oh, not to me. When I, the first few years I was in the business, bonds were known as certificates of confiscation. And even though Paul Boker jacked interest rates up to the point that they were like six or 7% in real terms, in other words, the short-term interest rates, the Fed funds rate and T-bill rates were 6 to 7% above inflation. I mean, if that was the case today, we'd have 10 or 11% Fed funds rates. And I became kind of a, I was a little slow to appreciate how big a deal that was when I was so new in the business. But by 1982, I really became convinced that we were at the early stages of what was going to be a monster bull market in bonds. And I basically stayed a bond bull uh, with a few exceptions. There were times, you know, late in an economic cycle where we would short, short duration. But for the most part, uh, certainly, whenever there was a bond sell-off, we were buyers, and we believed that we were in the secular or long-term downtrend in interest rates. But what changed me was the combination of the ten-year Treasury getting down to almost half a percent, believe it or not, in the summer of 2020. At the same time that the U.S. government was doing modern monetary theory, a multi-trillion-dollar budget deficits, almost totally funded or heavily funded by the Fed's printing press. You know, their ma- I call it their magical money machine. And to me, that was just like game over for the bond bull market. We became, and that was one of the number one points in my book. You brought, brought up the book Bubble 3.0. And my belief was because interest rates fell to such unbelievably low levels, and they had even before COVID, the COVID pushed them down even lower, that it just distorted so many asset prices, you know, particularly real estate. I mean, real estate is so interest rate driven. And as you probably know, there were uh, home buyers in Denmark that were getting paid by their bank to take out a mortgage. They had negative yield. There was something like $17, $18 trillion of negative negative yielding bonds in early 2021. And so that was what I thought was the epicenter of the biggest bubble ever, biggest bubble in human history. And it led to all kinds of permutations, whether it was NFTs or SPACs or profitless tech or the infamous uh, meme stocks like GameStop and and, uh, AMC and it just it was absolute mass insanity. I think we hit you know the peak of that in 2021, and I was frantically writing my book at that point to try to get ahead of uh, the popping of Bubble 3.0. And one of my warnings to people was in early 2022, you're going to lose money on your bonds and your stocks, which is not the way it worked for 40 years before that. Whenever stocks would go down, bonds would go up, and you got a counterbalance. My point is counterbalance is gone. It's going to be a double hit, and guess what? That's what we got in 2022. Yeah, yeah, you're well. You're right. That was and that was like extremely unusual. I want to hear more on this. I want to hear more on um your your views on on bonds. And I'm again taking so many notes, and this is so helpful to have you on on David. Well, thank um, you. The federal funding fiasco. I want to hear more on this federal funding fiasco and so much debt that will overwhelm the buyer. I just want to hear. Let's flesh that out some more. So part of the problem is not just the supply. The supply is daunting enough, but it's also the demand side. So. Who was the biggest buyer? Well, there are really two major buyers of, of government debt over the last decade. 
And in a sense of financial crisis, one was the Fed itself, again, using its magical money machine, right? That was QE. Uh, but the other was the foreign central banks who were recycling their trading. You know, it's not just our budget deficits, our trade deficits. So when we run a trillion dollar trade deficit or 800 billion, whatever it is at the time, the recipients of those need to do something with the money. And mostly what they did uh, really over the last 40, 50 years, but particularly since the financial crisis, they would recycle them back into treasuries. The problem is they're now sellers. The Fed's a seller. So you've got this tremendous, and the banks are sellers, by the way, because the banks have got way too many treasuries. That's what brought down uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic. It wasn't that they had bad loans. They just had way too many treasuries that collapsed in value. But here's an interesting statistic. This is from Jim Reed at Deutsche Bank, and he's admittedly, admittedly doing back the, uh, back the envelope, but it's pretty logical. There's something like $70 trillion of losses that have happened in bond portfolios globally. And to put that in perspective, there's about $107 trillion of total stock market value. It is an enormous money uh, number, and those losses are somewhere. We know the banks have been clobbered. I mean, if you really mark all the banks to market on their loan book and their securities book, they're probably, you know, they have negative net worth. I, I'm not sure even JP Morgan wouldn't have a negative net worth. But of course, they won't be forced to do that. The Fed is giving them a lifeline with their uh, bank term funding program and Anyway, but the point is losses are out there and they're enormous. They're, and somehow they're, they're also, a lot of these bonds are being bought on extreme leverage. So the big buyers, where, where you do see overseas bank, central banks buying treasuries are those countries like Luxembourg or the Cayman Islands or even the UK where, they're, uh, where a lot of hedge funds are domiciled. So the hedge funds are buying treasuries in enormous quantities and they're doing it with leverage as much as 100 to 1. And what, why they're doing that is they're doing the, what's called the basis trade. If you haven't heard of that, this is I think I think this thing's going to blow up. I don't know when or what the trigger is going to be. But basically, what they do is they short the futures market of treasuries because that's at a little bit higher price and very little bit higher price than the treasuries. Then they buy the you know large quantities, massive quantities of treasuries on on leverage with leverage on margin to to goose a, because again it's a very small profit that they're trying to capture. And they believe it's riskless, which in theory it is. But if you get into wild markets, they could the futures could actually go up in price, which they're short, and the cash market could go down, which they're long. And then you get this just enormous margin call. And if you think that's impossible, go back and look at the history of long-term capital in 1998, because that's basically what they were doing. They were doing something that was considered to be riskless with enormous amounts of leverage, and it blew up. And it almost crashed the financial system at that time. So I think this is incredibly dangerous to see this basis trade playing out right now. Wow. I've never, I have not heard of that. A basis trade. Okay. That's fascinating. Some people, it's um, a relative value that's trade. You, you should have Kevin Muir on your show. Kevin Muir's done a lot of work on this. He, he's a very, he publishes a macro tourist. He could give you way more details on it than, than I've just provided. But that's basically it in a nutshell. Suffice to say, it's it's just extremely dangerous. Yeah. Well, why do you think, why do they let them do that? The well, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I get it. It's like markets, but not. Um, I don't. Why would they do that? Because like the profits are pretty small or minimal. I mean, I guess they see it's it's riskless, right? Until I guess a steamroller comes along. Right. I mean, to, that's a great analogy. I mean, that's the old uh, Warren Buffett. It's like picking up. Uh, nickels in front of a steamroller. Nickels in front of, yeah. It's a very dangerous game yeah. to play. I mean, most of the time you get away with it, right? That's kind of the, the way those things work. But 
when they blow up, they blow up spectacularly. But I think, you know, the cynical answer to your question, I'm not saying this is the total answer, it's probably multiple answers, is that uh, the government needs those buyers because there's hardly anybody else out there willing to buy. Now, certainly, uh, this is where it's important to talk about short treasuries versus long treasuries because there is almost unlimited demand for short treasuries. Uh, the, the money moving from the, it's amazing to me, and maybe it's amazing to you, how much money still sits on uninsured bank deposits, earning nothing or very little. I mean, that's one of the reasons J.P. Morgan reported such good numbers last week is they still have so much money that's sitting in accounts they pay a very low interest rate on, as opposed to people just, you know, you picking up the phone, using just a tiny bit of energy to move that into a T-bill that's paying five and a half percent. It is happening for sure, but it's not happening to the degree I thought it would happen. I thought there would be this mass movement. Well, you look at Schwab's numbers today and it, I mean, it does look like they're losing a tremendous amount of deposits and it must be going into treasuries. So again, at the short end of the curve, enormous demand. At the longer end, it's more problematic. And the 30-year auction last week was a disaster. And I think that's going to be your ultimate tell. When you start to see auctions really go poorly on the long end, and possibly even a failed auction where they have to pull it, which has never happened before, you know, that's when things can really get messy. Yeah. I heard, um, I was listening to a Gunlock um, interview recently, and it, they call it T-Bill and Chill internally at Double and I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah. Um, on the treasury side of things, I was reading your Substack, Haymaker Substack, and you were writing that you continue to think, should U.S. Treasury surge to a yield of 6%, triggering a, triggering a nasty stock market correction, a dramatic bond market rally is likely to ensue. Can we hear more on that? Yeah, so if you look at this, I think there's a parallel situation. And of course, you know, like Mark Twain said, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. At least it's attributed to Mark Twain, maybe never actually said it, uh, but it sounds like him. And his he, he could be right in that a lot of the, I mean, that's, that's kind of market history, right? It, there are parallels, but they're never exact repeats. And my parallel that I'm bringing up is October of 1987, which again, I'm old enough to vividly remember. I've been in the business eight years when it happened. And it was stunning. And the market went down 20% in one day and you know, almost 40% in a, less than a month. And it, it was truly a crash. And well, there were a number of catalysts, including the stock market had gone up a lot, was very expensive, at least based on history. Not nearly as expensive as it is today, is just a footnote. But what really was kind of the pin that, that popped that balloon was a very significant rise in long-term treasury interest rates. I mean, they went from about eight and a half percent during the summer of 2000, up, sorry, 1987 to a peak of 10 and a quarter in a relatively short period of time. And so that, that created a tremendous amount of competition for stocks. And it also created a lot of fears of a recession, which didn't happen by the way, but the stock market still got clobbered. And once the stock market fell out of bed, then treasuries went through a massive rally. And it brought those interest rates down, those yields down drastically back into the eights very, very quickly. And I do think that could happen again. So if we did get to six or six and a half, Jamie Dimon saying even seven, but let's just say six, and the market panics at that point, you, I think a bond rally is almost inevitable. And we do intend to try to play that. But I think what is important to realize for anybody listening to that, thinking, yeah, that kind of makes sense is that I think it's going to be, a tr to use one of Jay Powell's former favorite words, a transitory rally. I don't think it's going to be a sustainable one as we had during that 40-year bond bull market uh, because I think we're in a period of higher, kind of embedded higher inflation. Uh, but 
I also think that, you know, we've just got the problem. This is the thing that hardly anybody talked about, Julie, that says, yeah, buy bonds on on this economic weakness. If you think there's going to be a recession, really buy, you know, go long, long maturity. The trouble is, other than for a trading rally, think about what those deficits are going to do uh, when we have a recession. I mean, the fact that we're running deficits of 7 to 8% of GDP at a time of basically full employment, in fact, even lower than what the Fed was full employment until recently, and, you know, it's just, it's, unbelievably irresponsible on the part of our policymakers to allow this to happen. So he would, it's just, that that's what the, it would not, it would not be typical of past uh, market reactions or reactions to recessions. Typically you do want to extend and go long-term with government bonds where that hasn't worked has been in emerging markets that have had the kind of fiscal fiasco that we have, because that's what happens in recessions. Long-term interest rates actually go up because there is such an onslaught of bonds that need to be sold. And if nobody else is willing to step in, which is often the case, then it's the central bank. And I do think at some point the Fed is going to be forced into once again doing QE. And I don't think Jay Powell will stick around for that, by the way. I think he will resign before he restarts the the magical money machine. Yeah, it's a it's a good point you may bring up about the deficit too and like um, running it at those levels during... What's presumably like it's like a wartime deficit in a peace time, if you will. Precisely. So I guess like I kind of I bring this up a lot on the show because I'm a millennial and I don't know maybe I'm like way too worried about it, but it does bother me too. Like our fiscal picture, um, and who's ultimately going to have to deal with that? How do you think about the longer term consequences of our debt and deficit? Well, it's it's a great question. It's probably the most important question. I mean, it's existential, and that's why you get kind of irritated with all this talk about, you know, what the, what's, what are we going to do, you know, this quarter or what, you know, what's Netflix going to report or more importantly, what's NVIDIA going to, you know, what are they going to release? And it's just like, you know, the old saying, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's like, can't forget all that stuff. That doesn't matter. What matters is that we are, you know, the, the country's circling the drain. I mean, not just financially, but you know, my world is financial. So that's what I'm going to focus on. And by the way, you interviewed uh, Neil Howe, I think, right? Uh, didn't you have him on I your did, show? I did, yes. The Fourth Turning, yes. Fourth Turning is here. So he wrote The yeah, Fourth Turning. The new book. And, and yeah, the, the new, new book. book is yep. The Fourth Turning is here. And that is, you know, I think he's right. And I, I think you just look at what are the major developments occurring even this year. And you go, man, these are very Fourth Turning is here like or esque. Uh, and again, to have a stock market that's just in this don't worry, be happy mode when you have all these pieces falling into place that indicate the fourth turning. And for people who don't know it, it's basically that's the crisis time. And it is pretty amazing throughout history, but even American history, you go back 70, 80, 90 years, and there are these mega crises that that happen in, in those intervals. And we're at that point now. We're about 80 years past uh, you know, World War II, which obviously had a very successful resolution. So I think for your younger people that are listening, you know, and I certainly consider you young compared to me, that it's not all bad news. And in fact, I've got a friend who's he's the chief strategist at StoneX in San Francisco, Vincent Delaware, very bright guy. And he's been one saying, look, we've got all this money in the system, we're not gonna have a recession yet. But he is very, very bearish on the outlook for long-term bonds. He feels like the only uh, solution is basically what America did after World War II when we used inflation to lower our debt to GDP, which we did. I mean, from 1945 to 1952, we went from about 125% federal government debt to GDP down to about 
which was a, you know, that was a, a kind of a sustainable number. Then through all the inflation from the early 50s to the late 70s, while I got into business, uh, they got the de- debt to GDP down to 25%. You know, we're there today, but put one, uh, one in front of it. So 125% once again. Yeah, that's why Paul Volcker was able to do what he did with interest rates is because the debt levels were so low in comparison to today. So I, I think we have to inflate our way out, which actually for younger people isn't a bad thing because your wages will adjust with inflation. You don't own a lot of bonds. It's mostly the boomers that own bonds. And I think the bondholders are going to be the sacrificial lambs if they don't recognize that they're in. What to indicate to me that they don't recognize is look at the inflows right now at the TLT. So that's the long-term government treasury bond ETF. They're just off the charts. Tremendous call buying option on TLT. So it, it that is the opposite of the kind of capitulation that you would think that would mark a true bond bear market bottom. So I think inflation's coming and I think it's it's we're my generation, my stupid generation, the me generation that's you know, gonna pay the piper as we should. Yeah. Okay. So um I'm hearing you like that um you see inflation sticking around. Um I also heard you earlier like more of a that will remain in this structural bear market for bonds. So my question for you, David, is and I, I don't I don't want to put you on a spot and make you name any individual names whatsoever, but where do you want to be? Like where do you want to be allocated? Well, if you'd asked me that a few months ago, I would have pounded the this table here and said energy. Now, back in June, we put out our, usually when we put out buys, especially in this, what I think is a bear market rally phase, we're pretty hedged. And I say like a nibble. If you, if I like something, just nibble on it. But in June, we had oil prices in the 60s. And I think it was artificial because of the SPR releases, strategic petroleum reserve. So we were very, very bullish on energy. I'd say I'm mildly bullish on energy today because the stocks are still very inexpensive. There's a lot of great dividend yields out there. They're using tremendous discipline. You may have seen the chart on DUCs, which I think, and so that stands for drilled but uncompleted wells. And this gets almost no press. And I think it's just stupid. I think it's really a major oversight because the fact that these things are down at you know, like a 10-year low is really concerning. So let me tie that together. So you hear people all the time say, look, the drilling rate count in the United States is way off. So the number of uh, drill rigs looking for oil is well off, way off of where it used to be 10 years ago and even 2019, but we're at almost record production. How can that be? Well, the reason, I think the main reason is because they, when COVID hit, there were all these wells that had been drilled and they were just stopped, you know, in mid, in mid process. And so after, you know, when oil recovered, then the, the producers went back in and they completed so they're drilled. The first thing that happens is they're drilled and then they're completed. That's actually the fracking, the very controversial but in- incredibly essential fracking process that you hear so much about. So they've been fracking these things like crazy for the last couple of years and that inventory is almost gone. So what happens when that runs out? And actually, if you look at productivity, the Permian and the Permian is the key to the US oil production. Productivity is for the first time ever is actually falling in the Permian. And it's the uh, the actual output in the other shale basins in the United States is already falling. So I think we've got a real supply problem coming, the opposite of the government bond market. Shortage so rather than excess. If we have a, so we have a supply problem coming, meaning so- We're not going to have enough oil. We're not going to have enough. We're going to have a, an okay. acute and lasting oil shortage, which is another reason okay, why- Okay, so I think that's going to boost prices and that's going to impact inflation because when you think about- 
Yes. Okay. And wait till natural gas gets going again. So natural gas in the United States is trading for, if you look at it, what they call the strip, which is the 12-month price of the natural gas futures contract. The reason they do that is because it's there's quite a bit of seasonal variability, summer versus winter, although summer's not as a drop, much of a drop-off as it used to be. Anyway, if you look at the strip, it's about $3.30 per, think of like per gallon of gas. It's actually per million BTUs, yeah, British thermal yeah. units, but it's like a gallon of gas. In Europe, it's it. $16. Wow. And that's way down from where it was. Okay. And, you know, the odds of Putin doing more to try to, you know, create an en- energy strangulation on Europe are, are going up, uh, especially going to this winter. So, you know, last year, Europe was very fortunate, had a mild winter. If they were to get a normal winter with, uh, with the kind of energy cutoff that they've experienced, and certainly the U.S. is doing its part. We're, you know, we're shipping LNG, the liquefied natural gas in Europe, but- the point is that the, the price differential between, and the same is largely true with Asia. So American natural gas is just a complete outlier in terms of how cheap it is. And it also is pretty clean burning. So it's yeah. fairly ESG friendly. So I think natural, you know, an area that I like a lot right now is natural gas. You can either play that with futures or you can play with the natural gas producers. So that's you know, one pretty specific tip. Yeah. Well, I got to say, David, I've really enjoyed having you on and listening to you and learning from you. And I know um, the viewers are going to appreciate it as well. And I, I definitely want to have you back on because you oh, are well, so, thank you. so fun to listen to. I'm, I'm, and I mean that. I do want to give you a few moments um, as we wrap up here. Let folks know where they can find you, whether it's on social media, subscribe to your Substack, pick up your book and any parting thoughts that you want to leave um, with the folks who are watching and listening. Yeah, the easiest way to follow us is at Substack. So it's Haymaker underscore Substack. And we do a bi-weekly newsletter. We did go paid here fairly recently, though both of our newsletters are at least partially visible to even non-payers. Uh, I mean, I think our basic service level is almost a giveaway, given the content that we produce, because we actually do give actionable investment ideas in, in fairly specific terms. Now, with compliance, so you probably hear this from other guests, you got to be a little bit careful. And so we try to you know, not give specific security recommendations, more asset class recommendations. But we even will highlight individual securities that I think are interesting with the caveat that you should do your own research. My point, and, and I think, you know, Julia, to that, you know, really where I was going with that is that unlike a lot of my newsletter writing colleagues, I actually manage money. As you said, I'm co-CIO of Evergreen GovCal. We manage about $4.5 billion of client assets. So, and we've got multiple strategies. We actually have a deep research team. We, we analyze securities. We don't just pick funds. So I think we've got some advantages over those that don't, uh, that don't have that kind of expertise. So thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you, David. I really appreciate it. David, hey, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Julia.